Welcome to Converse on the Couch from Life Stance Health, where each episode you'll hear engaging informative conversations with leading mental health professionals that will help guide you on your journey to leading a healthier, more fulfilling life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Halloween episode of Converse on the Couch from Life Stance Health. I'm Nikki Lianza, and on today's spooky episode, I'll be talking with Angel Kramer, a clinician from one of our St. Louis, Missouri offices, and we'll be talking about the masks we wear and how our thoughts can haunt us. So welcome back, Angel. Always great to have you on. Hello, Nikki. I'm so glad to be back on for the Halloween episode. And let me say, for our our listeners who maybe can't see us right now, Angel, can you describe what you are wearing? Yeah, so I am in my Halloween costume that is Sam from the scary movie Trick or Treat. Sam is a little boy in the movie who dresses as kind of a scarecrow with a pumpkin straw head. So I kind of look like a scarecrow. It's a great, great costume for sure. And I'm just wearing a witch's hat. So I, (laughs) there we go. Right. All good fun for Halloween, for sure. So I think this is a really great topic because we're, we're looking at, you know, and we'll get more into this, some of the masks that we might wear either to, the, to protect ourselves or maybe even as the, fe- the defense mechanisms or just to present ourselves in a different way to others, you know, also looking at like overthinking. So we have a bit of a hodgepodge, but I think this is so appropriate for our Halloween episode, for sure. So absolutely. So as we're diving in, we know that wearing costumes and masks are an important part of celebrating Halloween, but why may people wear masks to hide who they may be in their everyday lives, Angel? Yeah, so first I want to start off by giving a little bit of history on Halloween. Oh, please, please. Wearing costumes and masks, because as we discussed in a previous episode, I have a huge interest in evolutionary psychology and having an understanding of where we come from with the history of Halloween can kind of give us a little bit of insight on those same kind of masks and costumes that we wear today. So Halloween stems from an old Celtic holiday called Samhain, spelled Samhain. And the holiday is at least 2,000 years old, if not older. Okay. I didn't realize it was that, that old. Okay. It's been around for a minute. It has looked very differently over the years. For the Celts, and the Druids, they practiced celebrating their new year on Samhain. Let me take a step back. Samhain was actually their New Year's Eve. And for the Celts, they believed that on this day, this marking of the end of the harvest, the coming winter, the veil between the worlds was was the thinnest. The worlds being the land of the living and the land of the dead. And when that veil is that thin, all sorts of spooky, wicked creatures can cross through and wreak havoc and cause destruction and fear on Earth. So the Celts would don costumes and masks made out of bones and skins and twigs and dirt and whatever they could put on to be scarier, to ward them off, to get them to leave their village, to leave their land. Okay. And this was their defense. That was what gave them a sense of control, gave them a sense of protection and power. Wearing those masks and those costumes 
still plays the same role today, 2,000 plus years later. You know, whether it's putting on that costume on Halloween or cosplaying our favorite movie character, we feel a little empowered, a little different. That's true. When we put on those other outfits or those other masks. Even today, I walked into my office slightly differently because I'm in my Halloween costume. Right. And we can flip that over into the abstract a little bit in that we continue to wear masks to project a certain image of ourselves. Oh, that's a great way to describe that. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so kind of like me walking into the office this morning, I probably had a little bit more pep in my step, a little bit more hitch my giddy up to get a little Southern here because I'm not presenting as myself. I'm presenting as another character. Right, right. And we can stuff down our insecurities. We can stuff down our fear of judgment, of rejection. Because right now, I'm not Angel. I'm Sam. I'm Sam from Trick or Treat. And if we take that out of the holiday, we do the same thing in our day-to-day lives. We wear that mask to feel more accepted because we feel like some part of ourselves isn't going to be, or maybe it's lesser than, or we're afraid of that judgment, or we're afraid of being hurt. So if we put on that front, we put on that, just an example, that tough kid persona, we're less likely to get hurt, or at least we feel like we're less likely to get hurt. Right, right. And not all masks are necessarily to cover up our hurts heartaches and hangups. Sometimes we have to wear those masks to get through day-to-day life. We all put on that customer service mask. Mm -hmm. You know, our voice raises a little bit, our body language changes a little bit, and we start to word things a little differently because we're in that customer service role. Or like for us, we put on our therapist hat when we come into work every day. Right. We don't do, we usually don't do our attending skills and pull out our modalities and therapeutic approaches when we're talking to our friends. Right. Our but we come in our office and we're reflective listening. We're saying, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. we're nodding. We're engaging in a very different way yeah. than we would people in our day-to-day life. So these masks are adaptive. We've learned to do this to project a certain way to show up in a certain space in a certain way, whether it's protection, empowerment, a need for control, a trauma response, and we're just trying to survive. Yeah. Or even to do our job, to show up and do the task that we need to, to get paid. Our masks become more maladaptive and less adaptive when we lose ourselves in them. Uh. Okay. When suddenly, Angel's no longer Angel. And Angel doesn't know who Angel was to begin with. Then it's maladaptive. And then we might have something to work on. So if our if it doesn't become maladaptive, and it sounds like we all will do this, right? It, you know, it's also situation, you know, situational, you know, who I am as a therapist and how I'm presenting is going to be very different if I'm sitting there watching a Netflix show or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So is it, 
advantageous to take off the mask if it is serving a purpose for us to show our more authentic selves then? It can be. You know, living an authentic life and showing up genuinely feels better for us. Because if we're wearing that mask and that costume to hide from rejection, to hide from judgment, Mm. those rejections and judgments are already coming from us. Yeah. We're being mean to ourselves. We might not have even given the world a chance to respond differently. And of course, that could stem from a multitude of things. It could stem from uh, small T traumas in childhood that just kind of snowballed into the mask that we wear today. It could be internalized messaging that we got from society for not being skinny enough or not being masculine enough or, you know, whatever it is that society is telling us. So then we're like, no, we're going to we're going to pull this mask down a little bit. We're not going to show our real self for a while. And in that disconnect, we can trigger so many other things for ourselves. We can trigger anxieties. We can trigger fears and phobias. And then at the end of the day, we couldn't tell someone who we actually are when we take that mask off. So while it is advantageous to have a mask, and sometimes we need it, you know, having those survival skills, that resiliency in those masks is there for a reason. So we can be very, very naked and vulnerable without it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So sometimes we got to put on that costume. Mm. but we also have to be able to take it back off yeah and and probably one of those easier said than done you know how do we maintain who we are our sense of self even though we might have masks that we wear throughout our day so Mm -hmm. and like you said it's easier said than done to get to that point of authenticity and living our genuine lives and finding that balance between when we need the costume and the mask and when we don't takes a lot of practice yeah and finding our authentic self takes a lot of self-reflection a lot of sitting with ourselves and trying on different costumes trying on different masks because we have to know it's just as important to know which mask doesn't fit just as important as it is to know which one does such a key thing how would how would one determine that is it just experience with it and and like response to it yeah so this is going to come as a surprise but working with a therapist can be incredibly beneficial in that process to have that safe sanctity of an office where there's no judgment Mm. there's no rejection And you can try on that different communication. You can try on that different body language and that different persona, per se, and kind of see what fits and process through and work through whatever those hurts, heartaches, and hangups are that made that first mask so very comfortable to stay behind. And it could, I mean, you mentioned how comfortable, it could very feel very uncomfortable as you are trying on or, you know, using different skills and maybe a, even a different persona, because maybe, you know, an example comes my way of maybe you're trying a different persona of how you navigate arguments. Maybe typically you might yell and scream and just really lose control of your emotions per se. And you're trying to do something different. 
but I I think sometimes it could just be a bad habit in how we we maybe behave. So <laughs> is that a little bit of your illusion of of uh, of how we can do it in the therapy office of practicing it and stuff like that? Yeah, and even beyond the therapy office, you know, one of the things that I work with my own patients on is starting a practice of self-reflection. Mm. Whether it's throughout the day or in the evening, whatever is most comfortable for them, where they reflect back on their day and they're like, did I like how I showed up in that situation? Was that me? Who said those things? Is that something my mom would have said? Is that something society would have wanted me to say? Or was that fully me? If it wasn't, am I okay with that? What can I change? And what can I do next time to show up more authentically myself? Gosh, Angel, I love that. That's actually really key right there. And I love that you emphasize self-reflection. So it enables people to, to take a step back, really reflect on the behavior. And, and you know, how can, if they were not, if they did not like how they were presenting, you know, what do they need to do to, to shift that, to change that, to present differently? Mm-hmm. It's really good. And that, that gives us the grace to practice. Oh, you know what? I didn't respond the way I wanted to in that argument. I got upset. I started cussing. I started yelling. I don't like that. That's not me. Here's how I can do that differently next time. And there's also some behavioral things that we can try as well. For a lot of us, those behavioral changes, how we physically show up, can be easier to change and try on and alter mm. than that abstract mental and emotional work. With my teenagers, I work with them a lot on figuring out how they are physically in the world. What do you look like? How do you want to look? And sometimes that can be as simple as wearing those clothes that feel like you. Mm-hmm. Having your hair cut the way that feels like you, that matches that internal image of yourself, who you would be on your ideal day. And I, I love that you're emphasizing that with your teens. We know developmentally exactly where adolescents lie is looking at, you know, trying to figure out your identity and who you are. And so you're definitely empowering your teens to, to do that. Now, I think where the issue might come up if if their idea of how they want to express themselves maybe doesn't quite gel with maybe their parents or their caregivers, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then we have another beast to grapple with, mm. with these costumes and masks. And sometimes as long as it is a slow progression or maybe still meeting in the middle, like maybe your parents don't want you to be that 100% 80s goth kid. But maybe they're okay with you wearing Doc Martens. It's the compromise to it. Okay. Exactly. That's exactly. Great. Because we still have to fit in. Mm, that's not the right wording. We still have to be courteous and respectful and not mean. Mm. And sometimes that means meeting in the middle, making those little changes, like wearing Doc Martens rather than going full on black face paint, white face paint. Gotcha. Gotcha. And in in that regard, we're right back at adaptive or maladaptive. When are our costumes adaptive? When are they maladaptive? And where can we tweak it a little bit? 
I think this is, you're giving really great feedback here. And I want to jump back to something you said, uh, you know, alluding to how uh, these aren't your precise words, but you know, how we can be our harshest critic. And, you know, that definitely shifts me into thinking of often our harshest critic are, is, you know, overthinking is what we're telling ourselves. And, And for some people, it might be just intrusive thoughts. So as we're shifting gears and even looking at how our own thoughts can haunt us, Let's talk a bit about that. So here, let's start with, can you share with us the difference between overthinking and intrusive thoughts, just to help clarify? Absolutely. So intrusive thoughts are unwanted. They can be sudden and seem random. They're distressing and they're outside of our control. Whereas overthinking is a little bit more along the lines of ruminating. We have a stressor. And we hold on to it and continue thinking about it, whether it's replaying scenarios, replaying conversations in our head, exploring all of the what ifs and going down all of those little rabbit holes of thoughts. And we struggle to let go of that thought process. So I think when we look at intrusive thoughts, oftentimes, oftentimes, not always, it could be tagged on to what someone might be struggling with, with obsessive compulsive disorder, perhaps, right? With overthinking, I think overthinking for some people starts off with just trying to problem solve, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to roll through and figure out a, a problem, a, you know, solution to a problem, but it becomes maladaptive because it just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. The analogy that I like to use in my office with people is that of a bonfire, which also goes back to the Celts and their bonfires on Halloween. If we are setting by that fire, And all of a sudden, the wood and the fire pops. We're startled. We're a little stressed. We did not want that to happen. That is an intrusive thought. We didn't do anything to trigger that popping. Mm. We didn't want it to pop. Intrusive thought. Whereas if we're setting by that fire, we might need the fire. The fire might be adaptive. But we just keep putting wood on it putting another log. Oh, God, that is such log. a great analogy. And all of a sudden that fire is bigger. It's going to take longer to go out. And while we wanted and needed that fire to begin with, it is no longer a need and it is no longer adaptive because now we're just throwing more and more fuel on it mm-hmm. and it's out of control. God, again, that's such a great analogy and, and so ap- appropriate for our time, you know, our conversation of just Halloween as well. You got definitely got it set up here. So, again, great example. If we're going to look at how does one help with the popping intrusive thoughts coming out of the fire? Let's start with intrusive thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So with intrusive thoughts, less is more. It feels counterintuitive to not do anything about it, but sometimes doing too much actually fuels those intrusive thoughts a little bit more. And putting too much focus, too much energy in analyzing those intrusive thoughts, trying to find meaning, trying to make meaning, uh, trying to push them out of our heads can actually lead to ruminating. So now our intrusive thoughts have led to rumination and overthinking. And now we're going to have those intrusive thoughts more often. When sometimes recognizing that those thoughts aren't us, we didn't want those thoughts. We didn't put them there. Being able to separate from it a little bit while also just 
ride the wave. Oh, I see you, intrusive thought. I know you're there, but you are not my thought. So I'm going to let you hang out in my head for a minute, and then I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing. Great, great example there. And and it's definitely distinguishing yourself from your thought. It's definitely teasing it out, separating it from you. I think it's something that most people have a hard time, especially when you share like, you are not your thoughts. Well, it feels like we are because it's in our head and we, ha- we have this constant play- tape playing, you know, we haunt ourselves with our, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so, you know, I think the language itself of like, I'm not my thought. You know, I, I think definitely I love the example of like kind of teasing that out and separating it for you. Do you have other examples of how one can do that as they practice it? Yeah. So just like anything else we talk about, it takes practice. So having that grace with yourself and doing it consistently, it's okay if it fails a couple of times. Because we aren't trying to perfect it. We're just trying to improve it. Yeah. And mindfulness can help. You know, having those times of day, having those grounding skills where we can kind of practice sussing out which thoughts are, am I in control of? And which ones are just that little gremlin hanging out the back that popped in when that veil was thinnest. Mm. And as we practice that, we start to recognize the difference more and more. We start to recognize what is our own voice? What is our own thought? And what is something that that gremlin is just throwing out there to try to derail us? And over time, it can be a little easier to recognize because those intrusive thoughts are so distressing and so unwanted. Yeah. That when they pop up, we can be like, oh, nope, there was that crackle on that fire. Yeah. Mm-mm, mm-mm, I'm not going to put this log on there. We're going to let that fire simmer for a minute. Great. If we're going to use that fire analogy, so what about adding fuel and wood to the fire? So if we're looking at how to help with overthinking, is it a similar, obviously needing practice to do it and do it consistently. Other tips on how you help with overthinking? No longer putting that wood on that fire? Right. And sometimes it can be so appealing to put that wood on that fire because we have convinced ourselves that if we put more wood on that fire, it's going to keep us safer. We're going to be more prepared for the next fire. Yeah. But that fire doesn't transfer. Once that log is on that fire, there's no moving it to the next one. And it can feel advantageous to run through all of those thoughts over and over. How do I be prepared for the next one? How would I respond differently? How would I show up differently? And that can be adaptive to a point. You know, when we're self-reflecting, it is contained. We have that moment of self-reflection and then we leave it in that moment and we try to implement it later. Whereas with overthinking, excuse me, or ruminating, we're just holding on to it. We have taken that big stuffed animal of anxiety and fear and we're just cuddling it when we really need to let it go. And we can let it go by using some of those same mindfulness techniques, you know, visualizing a blue sky and flushing out those clouds and sitting in that moment excuse me it doesn't necessarily get rid of that stressor right but it does give us a moment of peace yeah 
to maybe kind of recoup and regroup and approach it a little differently. I think if we could just afford us that, right? Sometimes it is just a momentary break to kind of give us a, like you said, a sense of peace, which mm-hmm. might be enough time to help push the reset button and regroup too. Exactly. And externalizing those thoughts, whether it's the intrusive thought or the ruminating, getting that thought out of our head. So that way it's not just bouncing back and forth. It's not creating that atmosphere where we want to throw another log at the fire. And that externalizing could be putting in a journal. It could be sharing it with someone in your support system. It could even be just sitting in your room and just verbalizing it. Just to get it into a different space than up here. It's basically like, it sounds like getting out of your own head. Yes. Yes. And there are even other ways to get out of our own head. Going outside, getting some fresh air, being around trees or plants or pets or even other animals gives us a moment of reprieve to get out of our head and be in the moment. We have something tangible around us to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. And on kind of a, maybe a more lighthearted note, another thing that can help us is singing. Tell me about that. So music is one of the few things we experience that can activate multiple parts of our brain. And when we are singing, much like the Banshees on Halloween night, there's no ability for those ruminating thoughts to be taking place because we're singing, we are verbalizing, we're hearing the beat, and that is activating multiple parts of our brain. So once again, while it doesn't get rid of the triggers, the stressors, anything that is creating that intrusive thought or rumination, it means we aren't going to be doing it for a minute. Right. It gives you that much need a break. Mm-hmm. And, and music and singing is a mood booster. Yeah. It will help release all of those feel-good hormones. And that in and of itself can help us to separate from those intrusive thoughts and from that ruminating. And it doesn't matter if you don't think you're a good singer or what, or if you're an opera singer, it doesn't matter. Just do it. Just do it. Hmm. And if you're trying to sing a song from memory, even better. Because now you're actively trying to remember Hmm. the lyrics and the beat. Hmm. Meaning there are no other thoughts happening. And like you said, it doesn't matter. We could sound like that banshee on Halloween night. Or we can be Tina Turner. Right, right. Doesn't matter. Because we're not doing it for other people. Right. We're doing it for ourselves. And that's the key right there. Definitely. Oh, my gosh. These are such great tips. Angel, anything else you'd like to share about this topic or even about Halloween? (laughs) Nikki, I could talk about Halloween all day long. a great great topic to have you on for i i want to thank you again love to have you back on maybe you'll be our holiday guest as we move forward (laughs) i know we had you on for i think our holiday episode and our new year's episode as well so Mm -hmm. so i want to thank you again always appreciate having you on thanks nikki it's great to be on again 